Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Earlier this month, I attended RightsCon, the big gathering of individuals and organizations concerned with human rights and technology. The sprawling event had hundreds of sessions on a wide range of themes, but one topic discussed across multiple tracks was the importance of encryption especially to groups such as political dissidents and journalists. I helped run a workshop that asked participants to evaluate their own threat models for private communications and how they use encrypted messaging apps in practice. During the workshop, we previewed some of the key findings and recommendations in a forthcoming report on the security and design of encrypted messaging apps that I helped write along with Caroline Sanders, Cooper Quinton, Layla Wiley-Wagner, Tim Bernard, and Ami Mehta. Keep an eye out for that report, which will be published on June 20th. A key panel at RightsCon featured Signal President Meredith Whitaker and the head of WhatsApp, Will Cathcart, among others, who spoke out about policies proposed in legislatures around the world that threaten the promise of end-to-end encryption to preserve the privacy of messages sent between individuals and groups. Leaders of encrypted apps have pulled together of late to speak out against the proposed UK online safety bill, signing letters and appearing at events. Shortly after RightsCon, I connected with Meredith to learn more about Signal's posture against such legislation, why she sees encrypted communications as so crucial to freedom and human rights, and how the company thinks about safety and its role in the broader digital ecosystem. I'm Meredith Whitaker, and I'm the president of Signal. Meredith, I want to just start by putting Signal in context, because I think all of my listeners know what Signal is. I would suspect that more than half of them probably have a Signal app on their phone, but many folks probably don't know terribly much about the organization itself. Give me the basics. How many users? How many employees? How is it funded? Well, we don't give clear user numbers, but a short hack to try to deduce such for those of you into that kind of uh, sleuthing is to go to the Play Store and you can see that just for Android, it's been downloaded over 100 million times. So what I can say is we have many tens of millions of users across the globe. And that's wonderful because that makes us the most widely used, truly private communications app in the world. But that's not the only special thing about Signal. Signal is also a nonprofit, which in the tech industry, an industry where the dominant business model is monetizing surveillance in some form or another, it's really important to have a structure where you're not tempted or even pushed by investors or private equity companies or anyone else to prioritize profit, which often means surveillance over privacy. So the structure of the nonprofit is actually really important to ensuring that we can keep our eyes on the mission and we can keep focused on what we are here to do, which is provide a truly private means of communication in a digital ecosystem that has been hollowed out by surveillance or built around surveillance more accurately over the past number of decades. In that fight, of course, Signal plays an outsized role. You have an outsized voice. But again, I just for contextualization's sake, just want my listeners to understand, scale the organization, scale the budget. I mean, on one yeah. level, on the 990, you know, I can see that the thing is 
roughly pulling in what, 14, $15 million a year in donations, essentially. Roughly how many employees? So we have a little over 40, give or take there, but incredibly small for an organization developing and delivering a high availability app that needs to meet the norms and expectations of messaging or those who want to use it for ideological reasons can't use it because the friends who don't understand how it works and just want a message won't use it either. So we're, you know, we're a very small team. We're developing across multiple clients. We're about as lean as you could be for an organization developing something as expensive and labor intensive as a messaging app that works instantly, always, everywhere. In terms of funding, we are donor funded with a large runway that was provided by Brian Acton. But I think what it's important to stress is it costs tens of millions of dollars a year to develop and operate Signal. And that is hosting costs, that's registration costs, that's labor costs, but it is a it's a forever expense that goes up somewhat, not not one-to-one, but it, it goes up in proportion to the number of users we have. So the, the goal for Signal is really to be small donor funded. And that's one of my key focuses. We want to be funded by small donations from some percentage of those tens of millions of people who rely on Signal um, because we want to be accountable to those people and because we want a model that is as safe and robust as possible. We don't want to rely on the generosity of one or another institution or person because, of course, those institutions or people have the right at any moment to decide they want to do something else with their money. And and we don't want to be in that position. I should disclose that I am one of those small donors. I have the little star icon next to my account, I suppose, which indicates that I part with about $5 a month to Signal Foundation. So doing my best, I suppose, but I, of course, use the app religiously. I kind of want to go into a little bit of just the philosophy behind Signal a bit, and I don't want to spend too much on it because I know that my listeners can go and and read quite a lot of material on this, but I was struck by this Anna Wiener profile of of Moxie Marlinspeck, one of the founders of Signal in the New Yorker back in 2020, talked about the idea that Signal has this sort of halo of subversion It certainly has a kind of cool, almost a kind of, I suppose, what's the word I'm looking for? Iconic. Maybe maybe punk rock kind of sensibility to to the Signal brand. But is there a, a, a conceptual framework or an evolving kind of philosophy of Signal that goes beyond we think privacy is good? Well, I think Signal is cool because it's cool. It's real because it's real, right? There's a there's a way that that contrasts really shockingly with the kind of PR inflected comms that are meant to be as safe for everyone as possible. The kind of excuses and framings around new products and features that are come out of the dominant tech companies that are clearly calibrated to sort of please advertisers or investors, but are narrated as good for humanity. It is very different when you're simply able to be real about what you're doing, when you're actually able to focus on one vision. And that is privacy is good, but we can talk about why privacy is good, right? Power asymmetry thrives on information asymmetry. Surveillance is always a tool of the powerful to classify people into good or bad, to control people based on various interests and and can go beyond that into devastating effect. We can't look at a mass atrocity in the last hundreds of years 
without recognizing that that required the categorization, enumeration, and sort of monitoring of populations to accomplish. Now, we are now in an age over the past handful of decades, you know, where mass surveillance on a scale and granularity that we've never seen before is commonplace simply as a product of our participating in regular social and economic life. We can't get a job without having a cell phone. We're flagged as, you know, a potential suspect if we don't have a social media trail via some algorithms. Like this is our lives are narrated and surveilled at an extent we haven't seen. So what Signal is doing is saying privacy is good, but it's also saying, and here is a way to preserve the norm of privacy that was part of human communications for literally millions of years before we can mark certain dates. But let's, you know, let's choose, you know, the mid 90s when the Clinton administration put down a neoliberal policy agenda where privatization and commercialization of network computation was a core to their neoliberal aspirations. And they handed the keys to private industry to self-regulate on privacy. The surveillance advertising business model was developed. And now we have now we have a real set of problems that at their core involve the power asymmetries of surveillance that Signal is simply working to provide a real alternative. But providing a real alternative is incredibly cool. I would say it is indeed punk rock. I want to get a little bit into, well, the thing you just mentioned, which is kind of putting things in a bit of a historical context. When we happened to see each other last week at RightsCon mm -hmm. uh, in Costa Rica, we talked very briefly about this moment that we're in where encryption, privacy appear to be really under threat across the globe, even in democracies that claim to protect it and to prize free expression. I opened the New York Times on my phone this morning and saw Julia Angwin's guest essay. One of the last bastions of digital privacy is under threat. She appears also to be sort of framing this moment that we're in as a kind of turning point. Does it feel that way to you? Do you think you can tell which way it's going to go at the moment? It feels critically important, and I don't believe in inevitability. I believe in invitations to push for better futures. I have felt critical moments before, certainly 2015, 2016, with the showdown between Apple and the FBI was a critical moment and could have gone otherwise if there wasn't concerted, organized pushback from experts who understood the stakes. I think we are in another one of those moments. I think there are an array of forces that are troublingly aligned against the right to privacy or the right to communicate digitally outside of the mass surveillance of governments and corporations. And to be honest with you, one of the reasons I decided to take this job was I saw this moment on the horizon. This has been building for a while, and I didn't think there was much that was more important I could be doing than doing everything I could to ensure that Signal was, was safe and that we could meet this moment and continue to provide people a real private communications option. Your voice has been prominent in the last few weeks. You've had op-eds, you've had appearances, you've been attending events like RightsCon. When you survey the landscape at the moment, where are the kind of policy environments where you're most concerned? I mean, it seems like the UK clearly is the place where you've put a lot of your effort lately, but it's not just the UK. Yeah. I mean, the UK is the closest to potentially being ratified. So we, we, we have certainly been focused on the UK. And of course, as you know, Justin, as somebody who's also working in this space for a long time, 
one law passes and it's copy paste, right? The power of the precedent is huge here. And the UK would be the first to implement a law that allows one of their government agencies to mandate client-side scanning, which is effectively mass surveillance that would scan every message you sent before you sent it against an opaque database, judging whether it's acceptable speech or not, whether or not that judgment was correct, whether or not there was a malformed AI system in the background making spurious predictions or determinations would be hard to know. But those are really the stakes. And, and if that passes in the UK, becomes precedent. It becomes easy for any other country to point to, you know, well, the UK did it. And the UK certainly is a democracy. So how can you say that this is a move toward authoritarianism? And then, you know, you're effectively moving in a direction where you're eliminating the possibility for private digital communications. Extraordinarily stark. When you look to the EU, of course, we've seen this leaked document recently published in Wired that seemed to expose the different member states' perspectives on encryption. Spain, perhaps going in a particularly worrying direction politically, certainly on one end of the spectrum there, proposing essentially the outlawing of end-to-end encryption in its borders. Spain also, I think, set to take over the presidency of the EU next year. What's your perspective on what will happen in the EU? Are you able to tell or is it a little more up in the air? Yeah, I mean, it feels more up in the air. And you also have a number of countries who were not aligned with eliminating or undermining privacy. So many of the northern states. So there's there's a clearer divide there. But I do want to caveat this, like, I'm lucky to work with a coalition of experts. I work with folks at Edry. I work with Open Rights Group in the UK. You know, I talk to a number of other people who are much closer on the ground in the day-to-day political discussions than I am. That's just not something that as a small org based in the US primarily with with a, a lot of other duties that I'm able to do. So I, that's the type of question I would actually ask them because I would prioritize their their expertise and you really just their instinct on how the nuts and bolts of politics gets done. But my my impression is the UK is closer and we need to watch that carefully. And that's that's where we have been applying pressure based on the advice of a lot of the folks we work with. And the EU is is farther away, but nonetheless extremely concerning. And to be clear for everyone, our position on both is the same. We simply will not undermine the privacy promises we make to the people who rely on us. And we will never participate in a regime that would force us to adulterate or weaken our encryption. You mentioned at RightsCon that if, in fact, the UK were to introduce some requirement for client-side scanning or otherwise interfere in the function of encrypted messaging apps, that you might have to revert to offering the service in the same way that you might in a country where it is in fact banned. So perhaps a proxy like in Iran? Yeah. I mean, we would do anything we could to get the people in the UK access to the right to private communications, right? We're pretty agnostic there, right? We do recognize that in moments like the uprisings in Iran or in moments were the UK government to move forward mandating mass surveillance and undermining the rights of privacy, that that decision doesn't necessarily represent the people in those countries and that those people still have the right to privacy. So in the case of Iran, we worked with our community who set up proxy servers that helped 
people who had Signal installed in Iran bypass the block. And we would we would certainly explore that and other options in the UK. Our commitment is to the people in the UK and our commitment is to ensure they they can exercise their right to privacy. I suppose there is at least some defense or some good thing about the reality that the US is essentially kind of unable to pass much of anything when it comes to to technology. Yet encryption seems to be perpetually under the target here. Is there a, a backup plan if in fact the US goes in the wrong direction? Well, I mean, that's certainly something that we discuss. I think I'm not going to lay out the blueprints uh, for the opposition, but um, I think there is a backup plan, but also real talk on this. People access through us through the app stores, right? We'll do what we can. But the centralized nature of the technological ecosystem that we exist within does mean that we really don't want it to get to that point. I think that's one of the things about encrypted messaging, when you really look at it as this sort of pivotal, almost totem when it comes to digital privacy, that if in fact it's impossible to send a private message from one individual to the next, we've then moved into a different phase altogether on this planet with regard to the relationship between technology firms, governments, and individuals in society. I struggle. I know you have no appetite for doomerism. But I still struggle slightly with how practically we get to, say, the year 2100 with the ability to, to send that private message still intact. And I'm interested in it not sort of as a sort of doomerist point of view, but more practically. Clearly, like defending encryption on the message apps we have at the moment is important. But what else do you think is key beyond that? You've talked a lot about AI recently and about the threat essentially that AI poses and why encryption is important in that context as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, when we're talking about 2100, I don't know how we get to 2100 with the ability to use the kind of water resources and energy resources on data centers that they require, right? Like we're looking at, I flew in from Costa Rica to a New York that was still shrouded in smoke from Canadian wired fires that general expert consensus read as exacerbated by climate change, right? We're hitting that kind of log function inflection point where it's very, very difficult to predict the future based on past data. And that is primarily like the X risk I am worried about is climate. We're looking at by the 2050, uh, an estimate I read the other day, and I'm not a climate scientist, but an estimate by a climate scientist is about 50% of the world's population will be displaced. So we're looking at significant upheaval. We're also looking at a structure of our, our world and the incentives that propel many of the powerful institutions in our world that is not commensurate with ensuring that we handle that, the impending crisis in a way that ensures everyone has as much of an ability to have a, a thriving and dignified life as possible. So I'm, I'm not to skirt around the core question, but I think there's a lot, there's a lot coming up that means that for me, if we are going to be able to create a livable world, if we are going to be able to enact the necessary and socially beneficial, significant transformations of the way that our governments and our businesses and institutions work such that we're able to absorb these shocks 
as gracefully as possible, then we will need to be able to communicate privately. We will, it's an absolute necessity because those transformations will require a transformation of how power works. And it will require those who are most at risk of these harms, those who are in the often disinvested regions that contributed the least to the climate crisis to be calling the shots on how this crisis is dealt with, how resources are distributed, how we are changing our consumption patterns to respect a a changing planet that humans had a hand in changing. So I, I think there are there is a world where we can't organize, where we can't say anything to each other without being surveilled by those who may have an interest in curtailing dissent and where it feels dangerous even within our own psyche to explore dissident ideas or experimental notions or to question orthodoxy. So we absolutely need the ability to communicate privately. And, and that ability needs to be translated to the digital world because so much of our lives has effectively been moved consensually or not into the digital world. So then how do we ensure that that, that right remains? And I think we ensure that by continuing to fight. I don't think the will to mass surveillance is ever going away because, of course, the will to mass surveillance is a will to power, right? Like information asymmetry is a core tool of the powerful that is used to exact that power over those less powerful than them. And we've seen that from the beginning. We have state statistics. We can look at the kind of hollerith machines and the enumeration of populations and the good and the abjectly awful that has come out of that. We can look at all the, the history here, but it, it's pretty clear. So I think I don't have a formula for how we always win, but I think we need to recognize that this is a fight we're never going to we're never going to be given the luxury of getting tired of. So I'm all in on that gospel and in kind of see the world, I suppose, very similarly to you. That's that's my bias. I suppose there's probably somebody listening to this saying, yes, all for political dissent, et cetera. And yet lots of harms taking place that I'm also concerned about, concerned about child sexual abuse and child sexual abuse material spreading on these apps, concerned about terrorism, concerned about scams and fraud, concerned about groups that get so big that conspiracy theories can spread. I think one, we have to recognize those problems aren't online problems, right? And this conversation gets abstracted a lot into sort of, we use the prefix online digital terrorism, online child abuse. But of course, terrorism is committed by real people in the world who form the will to harm through complex social dynamics in a historical context. And again, that's not my field. Child abuse is committed by real people. Children, real children are suffering and actually need help, right? This is not happening in an abstract realm. Now, I think I also want to name there is a very big difference between a social media platform with broadcast capabilities that provides a content feed that we know from from early Usenix groups on, always effectively need a moderator or they devolve into some kind of gnarly mess where no one wants to be there, and a communication service that enables people to talk to each other one-on-one -on -one or in kind of chosen groups. So I think we cannot abstract these problems into online and then do the, the age-old trick that tech loves of shaping a complex or, or framing a complex social problem as a technical problem and then assuming it is going to be solved by tech. I, if we're going to 
be real about this, we can look at child abuse, right? The, the numbers are fairly clear. The majority of child abuse happens in the family. When it doesn't happen in the family, it is perpetrated most likely by somebody who has been entrusted as an authority figure to care for children. So teachers, pastors, youth group leaders, whatever it is, right? So, okay, that framing of the problem already shifts the solution space, right? That is not an online problem. We're looking at a problem that looks a lot more like a need for trusted intervention and support. And in fact, evidence points to the methods that generally actually help these real children who are suffering and need help look a lot more like early intervention. It looks like education. So children know the sort of boundaries of right and wrong and have the language to express it. It looks like social services and financial support that can help women and children get out of abusive situations because domestic abuse of generally a woman partner is very highly correlated with child abuse. And it's very, it's very, it is not infrequent that the reason that abuse persists is because there is sort of financial abuse that it's hard to leave. Maybe they don't have a job, don't have a place to go. And so providing those services is incredibly important. And then when I look at the UK where, you know, child abuse is the rationale, or the banner under which proposals for mass surveillance are being justified, it's very hard to take those proposals seriously when you recognize that in the last 10 years, they've cut funding for earlier intervention by 50%. So we have evidence-based approaches to handling some of these tragic and horribly upsetting problems. But what we often see is a rush to frame these as technical problems, frame technical solutions. And in the case of client-side scanning, the sort of mass surveillance approach, there are a number of firms who are sort of set to get big contracts if these go into play, right? And offer those as solving a problem that most people don't want to look in the eye. People don't want to look in the eye. A culture that, to pick one difficult example, looked the other way at the Catholic Church's sexual abuse scandal for years and years, even though it was broadly known. They don't want to look at a culture where there's one person being charged in Jeffrey Epstein's child rape ring, even though there are hundreds of powerful people clearly implemented, right? Like there is something, we can talk about this, we can look at it, but I think oftentimes abstracting this online and then offering a cheap technical solution is actually a way to avoid looking at the much more difficult reality of the nature of the issue we're dealing with. Is there a world where I suppose the thing that we have to worry about most with regard to uh, threats to privacy are folks who, I don't know, they just don't think that there's anything to hide on their own personal message app. And so they're simply not concerned with surveillance. Is that perhaps a bigger problem than perhaps we make it out to be in these discussions? Yeah, I mean, we certainly hear that that view and it's often expressed by people who are fairly powerful and fairly privileged. But I think, let's be real, it does, you don't have to do anything wrong, right? You just have to do something that somebody empowered doesn't like or has criminalized. You have to be the wrong type of person. You have to be classified as the wrong type of person. Right now, what does wrong look? Well, you in Uganda, wrong looks like being a gay person. You can get killed now. There's a law that was passed, pushed by U.S.-based evangelicals that criminalizes being gay with death. In Florida, what does being wrong look like? It looks like 
wanting to learn history, right? Checking out the wrong book. You have you have bills that are proposing criminalizing librarians. When other states, what does wrong look like? It looks like wanting access to health care as a pregnant person, right? And that's not just abortion care, right? We have people who are unable to access any health care because of fears of liability around harming a fetus, right? So let's be real. Everyone may have something to hide if there's somebody who would hurt them if they knew that, right? This is about power. This is about asymmetry. And this is about the fundamental ability to communicate safely and privately outside of outside of the gaze of those who could harm you based on what you have to say. The change in the tone around data privacy and fears around erosion of basic rights in the U.S. has changed immensely since last summer and the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade. Are you able to attribute any particular growth in the Signal app's downloads to that moment? I mean, we see steady growth, but we don't collect analytics. So not only do we not, we protect message context, contents with the Signal protocol. We have developed novel cryptographic techniques to protect metadata. So we don't know who you are. We don't know who you're talking to. We don't know who's in your contact list or your groups. And we don't collect the kind of analytics and telemetry data that most other apps do. So we, we have very little information that can correlate a given event with a, a spike in usage. Of course, we'll see, you know, in Iran or Ukraine, we'll see sort of growth and we'll make an educated guess. But our privacy commitments go down to the level of, you know, even blinkering us from some of the information that would enable us to make, um, you know, more informed determinations. Apart from the idea of trying to minimize or limit or completely not collect data at all in, in many cases, how, how do you make decisions about sort of the safety of, of certain features or settings. One thing, for instance, that uh, I'm aware of, Signal recently kind of increased the group size, for instance. That's a, a thousand now. Up to a thousand, which is much less, as I understand it, than perhaps some other message apps. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe on the far end of the spectrum, you've got things like Telegram, which I think will allow hundreds of thousands of yeah. users into a group. How, how does safety kind of factor into those types of decisions? We talk about it a lot. And so we think about this a lot on the product side of things and happily we have a really, really good chief product officer who's thought about these things for years. But we we talk about it a lot. We read, we talk to experts, but you know, in some sense, we're balancing things, right? We hear from organizers like we would love a group that is a hundred thousand big so we can just text out updates to our network and we get those requests daily. And then we recognize that, hey, we don't want to become a, a social media platform or broadcast media service. So how do we balance that? Well, what number makes sense? Well, let's look at what alternatives are doing. Okay, well, let's look at what are the requests? What are the sort of justifications for that? Okay, well, a thousand seems it is, it's large enough to include a small network of folks, you know, maybe, you know, your regional librarians or, you know, kind of network across the U.S. or something. But it is certainly... A thousand likes is not a viral tweet. So it's not sort of it's not something that is going to go viral and we don't have forwarding features and we don't have kind of the ability for that like metastatic growth. And so that's just a kind of an example of some of the thinking. But it's a lot of listening and a lot of discussion and a lot of thankfully relying on the expertise of folks who've been in this industry or sort of hit some of these issues. Of course, Brian was one of the co-founders of or was a, a co-founder of WhatsApp. So kind of 
it's helpful that he has gone through this with a very different product, but nonetheless has has thought through some of these things you know, during that decision making process. So, yeah, there's no perfect formula for it. And there's no we're always we make the decision and then we continue listening. Right. And we continue looking at the ecosystem. We continue looking at what's actually happening insofar as we have those insights. I suppose the last question I do have for you is about Signal's relationship to those other messaging apps, such as WhatsApp. And you were just on a stage last week with uh, Will Cathcart, who's the head of WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. You have recently publicly, the kind of developers of encrypted message apps have you know, signed letters together and otherwise kind of lobbied against certain policies that they're concerned about. What do you think of as Signal's role at that table? Are you a kind of, I don't know, blast shield for perhaps these larger tech firms that may have to bend to the interests of governments in a way that Signal perhaps can afford not to? I mean, we're just not going to. We'll go broke not if we can afford it either way. I, you know, like our, we have one thing we do and we're committed to doing that and that is providing a truly private digital communications app. So I don't blast shield. I'm trying to think about that metaphor. Like, are we, are we taking the heat from them? Um, I don't. I don't necessarily see it that way. Like in in the case of WhatsApp or or these larger organizations, they have they also have resources we don't, right? We're never going to have a huge policy team. We're never going to have a network of offices across the globe or, you know, at least not not in a future I foresee. And we may or may not have the resources to sort of fight some of the court battles, right? So I don't I don't know that we we take the heat, but like what we can do again is be real where they often can't, right? We don't have investors who are pressuring us. Like I don't have a a nervous general counsel who's constantly like concerned that one misstep might make Meta look bad, right? WhatsApp is in a weird position because they're kind of, they have done a huge amount to protect privacy by integrating the signal protocol to protect the contents of WhatsApp messages or most WhatsApp messages, like WhatsApp for business isn't protected, but they're also part of a, massive surveillance company, right? And so where they, I I know because I've worked one of those companies like have to sort of skirt around certain messaging or probably have to review a one sentence tweet about 30,000 times with like many, many different offices. Like we don't have to do that because really, you know, we, we know what we are. Our analysis is very clear and we're just going to go out there and say it. So I don't, I think we're we're often critical of WhatsApp. I think some of their cl- privacy claims are overstated. I would love for them to adopt the technologies we develop to protect metadata as well. But where we are aligned in terms of, say, the, the UK's online safety bills, encryption provisions or what have you, you know, we're also happy to work for them. Like we have our focus is ensuring that truly private communication continues to be possible. As president of the Signal Foundation, my last question to you, you've got let's say a roadmap three, five years in front of you. What do you hope to accomplish in that time frame? What can we look back on perhaps uh, the first years of, of Meredith Whitaker's term at Signal? What will we be able to say? Yeah, well, you know, I am really focused on that sustainability model. Can we show that tech can be done differently, that we can produce a high availability app and do it in a way that does not rely on monetizing surveillance and is accountable to the people who use us, not a board of directors or whatever shadowy investment firms. So that is that is really important. And I think that's actually key for sustaining privacy or digital privacy. I'm also very interested in 
just continuing to grow the the usage and accessibility of Signal, both in terms of ensuring that people of all in abilities can use Signal, but being attentive to the various and diverse ways that people use messaging, the requirements for messaging, getting a much better sense of how Signal performs in low bandwidth environments and getting a sense of how folks in different regions, what kind of features they prefer and and really thinking about like, okay, we're not going to be able to build many, many different versions, but how do we build something that isn't completely missing a must-have feature in a region where people might use that to communicate? And I think an example of that is stories, right? Stories, you know, we got some blowback mainly from kind of tech folks in the U.S. when we launched stories, but Stories is one of those features. It's huge in South Asia. It's huge in Brazil. It's a tool for day-to-day communication without which it's very difficult to say, hey, let's switch to Signal. So really thinking about how do we make the app as performant and as robust so that when there is a collective need for privacy or there's an event or there's a, a, say, WhatsApp changes its terms of service again to further integrate its data with Facebook or people just become increasingly sensitive to the harms of the surveillance business model, whatever it is, when they go to pick up Signal, it's there and doing what they need for them, not something that we still have to promise in six months it might work, right? So that we are, we're there and available and anyone anywhere can pick up Signal, use it easily to contact anyone else. So there's both a defensive strategy, I suppose, around the policy environment and <laughs> some of the existential concerns there. And it sounds like there's offense as well yeah, in terms of the further development. And of yeah. course, we've in five years, we've we've beaten back these anti-privacy bills and we, we have a, a, a bit of green pasture to, uh, to focus on the fundamentals. Well, I Amen. hope I'll talk to you before, <laughs> before those five years are up again and we'll hear a little bit about that progress and how things are going. Meredith, yeah. thank you. So nice to talk to you, Justin. So glad we finally made this happen. And uh, yeah, thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.